heading to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Also, I'm very thankful. Uh, Friday night was my last graveyard for eight months. And uh, so for looking forward, I got eight months of day shifts. And uh, it'll be busy and it'll be hot and it'll be chaotic, but I don't mind. Uh, I'll at least be asleep in my own bed at night and waking up on a regular schedule. So I kind of like that. Anyway, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 is where we're going to anchor in, and we'll head out from there. If I was to uh, put a title to the message today, it would be in the form of a question. And the question is, are we going to live in the power of the resurrection, or are we going to live in the aftermath of Easter? I, I read a number of articles during the course of my trip and while we were kicking back in hotels and here and there, and uh, various churches were discussing the great disparity between the attendance that they had on Easter Sunday and the following week. And uh, they were discussing methods to keep more people in church and how to retain that number that they had attained at one time in the year. Now, long ago, I formed opinion that you have people who come to church because of the fellowship in Jesus Christ. Then you have people who come to church because of church itself. It's the social atmosphere of church. And then you have the CEOs. And the CEO, you know what that is? Christmas and Easter. Christmas, Easter, and other special occasions. They're the CEOs of the church world. And, and unfortunately, uh, if you're a numbers person and you're depending on a number, you know, to reflect what God's doing in the church, you're going to be disappointed because as soon as it's vacation time, as soon as the weather gets good and the lakes are open and the boats are running, you're going to have a natural de departure of some folks that have better things to do. But boy, in the winter time, and it's, you know, the days are short, you might as well, you know, the church has got a heater, so you might as well go hang out. And they got a potluck every so often, you know, that's kind of fun. You get to visit with folks, and so a lot of people gravitate to church. And these churches were discussing, well, how do we keep all these people that show up on Easter, how can we retain them? And I think they missed the point. Resurrection Sunday, that first day of the week, is not about numbers. It's not about tradition. It's not about dressing up. It's not about potlucks and egg hunts. It is about Resurrection Sunday is about salvation. It's about repentance. And the very word repentance means a 180 degree turn. It's an about face. It's I'm going this way. And in repentance, I'm turning around and I'm going the other way. When you come to Christ, you were already headed a direction that wasn't good. You were already headed down a road that led to death, eternal death. And when you met Christ, there was an about face because now you have a future, you have a hope, you have eternal life ahead of you. That continuing relationship with Christ is what resurrection is about. It's not just an event. It's just not some day on a calendar. I think we'll see today by Scripture's example and teaching what happens when it becomes about anything besides Christ and maintaining Christ as the center 
and the guiding force in our life? Is Christ, through his word, through his Holy Spirit, directing and leading us, should be the foremost and the forefront thing in our lives? So let me read a few verses here. We'll get started. Um, well, let me explain it this way so you know where we're headed because otherwise I'll distract you a little bit. Um, first, we're going to see the sufficiency of Christ in these verses. The fact that he and he alone could do what needed to be done to pay our price, that he was sufficient to pay the whole price. It's not Christ plus our works. It's not Christ plus our baptism. It's not Christ plus our church attendance, but it's Christ, Christ alone. He accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, everything that needed to be done to overcome sin grip on us. We're going to see that. Chapter 1 and 2 of Hebrews, and in the first part of chapter 2, gives us the identification and the presentation of Christ as God's son and the sufficient sacrifice to pay that price. And it also opens up God's plan to our understanding. So when we pick up in 2.14, that's what's already been happening in chapter 1 and 2, is that, that God has chosen, even though in time past he spoke to the fathers through the prophets, as it says in verse 1, now he's speaking to us through his son. And then it opens up and it explains Christ. It explains Christ in the Psalms, Christ in eternity. And it brings us to this point in 2.14. So let's head up from here. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. We see here some necessary elements. A couple weeks back, two weeks before uh, Resurrection Sunday, I shared with you the humanity of Christ, how we saw he had stepped down from heaven's place. He had taken on the form of a man. He, he had to endure what we had to endure. He was tempted in all respects as we're tempted. He was tested. Uh, he was hungry. He had to be clothed. He needed food. He needed sleep. He needed rest. He took on humanity because we are human. He took on humanity as flesh and blood. He was not a spirit. He was not an illusion. He was flesh and blood, and he was there as flesh and blood to pay the price for us who are flesh and blood. His death was necessary. It was complete death. It was not almost dead. It was dead. And God chose that the Roman Empire, who was really, really good at killing people, would be the ones to make sure 
he died on the cross. You remember at the crucifixion, the Romans came because it was about sundown and it was going to begin the Sabbath. And they went out there on that night and they were going to break the legs of all who were on the cross so that they could no longer lift themselves up to open their uh, chest up, to get the rib cage and they're open so they get a breath in because when you were hanging on the cross, everything slumped down and you couldn't draw a breath. You couldn't get that expansion of your diaphragm to get a negative pressure to pull the air in. And you would have to shove yourself up against the nails that were through your feet. And you would have to shove yourself up so you could lift your rib cage, expand your diaphragm and chest cavity, get some air in, and then you would slump back down. So to make sure they died quick, they came out just before dark and they were gonna break their legs because then they could no longer lift themselves up. And they broke the legs of the thief on the left and the thief on the right, and they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. By appearance, he was already dead. What did they do to make sure he was dead? Put a spear in him. They put a spear in him. And out of that wound flowed blood and water. They pierced right to the pericardium of the heart and the blood, the water that surrounds the heart in that sac flowed out of his chest cavity, and they knew he was dead. It was absolute, he was dead. It was not a partial death, it was not a switcheroo. He was dead. It was a necessary death to pay the price for our death. The effects of his complete sacrifice were right here in this passage we just read. Number one, and I love this one the best, to destroy the devil. God did not just put devil on a timeout. The devil is going to be destroyed by the effective work of Jesus Christ. The devil will find his place in the lake of fire the devil will find his eternity separation from God in destruction. He's done. He knows he's done. He knows he has no hope. It's a death sentence that's not going to be commuted. It's not going to be passed on. It's not going to be let go. He's not going to be reduced of his debt. He, his complete sacrifice by Jesus Christ destroys the devil. And in doing so, he destroyed what the devil had and held on to till that moment on the cross. And that was the power of death. 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us death is swallowed up in victory. In the victory of Jesus Christ's resurrection, death was swallowed up. It was the proof that no longer did Satan have the hold, the power of death. No longer did he have that grip. Third thing, the effect of his complete sacrifice is it released the slaves to death. It released those slaves who were caught in the bondage of death. They were caught in the understanding that they had no hope. They had no way out. They had no way to earn their salvation. They had no way they could get around the penalty ahead of them. They just knew they were going to die. I don't know, hopefully you've not seen much because it's not really pretty, but I've seen when, uh, especially in the Middle East, when the terrorist groups have uh, gone to kill somebody, uh, their enemies, and behead them or shoot them or whatever they do. And, and I was always struck by the uh, attitude of those who were condemned to death. There was no resistance. There was no fighting. Their heads were down. They had no hope. 
They were plodding along, their arms were tied. They walked right to where they were gonna get shot. They didn't try to run, they didn't try to fight back. They had already given up. They knew they were dying and they accepted it. And they went to their death with no fight. They just gave up. And a lot of times you'll see this in uh, folks who have no hope, they don't have Christ. They find themselves at the end of their life. They find themselves in a rest home. They find themselves away from family. No one visits them. They give up all hope. They have no future. They have no eternity. And they just welcome death. Paul, go ahead. Yeah, the Bible says, here's what the news, don't, they don't tell you. But the Bible does say that there will be a time coming when they'll kill you and think that they're doing God's service. The Bible says that. Yeah, yeah. And the Muslims, that's the way they think. Yep. They believe they're doing it. Now, what's the number one um, identifier here in the verses we just read? What's the number one identifier of those who are slaves to death, who are caught in the bondage to death? What is their number one identifier? Fear. Yeah. They are, let's, let's go back and look at the verse. Um <coughs> He says, verse 15, and to release those who through, there it is, fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Through fear of death, they were subject to bondage. We see this in our world right now every single day. People are afraid of what's out there, afraid of a virus, afraid of a bug, afraid of inflation, afraid, afraid, afraid. And they make their decisions on fear, not freedom. They make their decision. I'll, I'll trade my, my freedom. I'll give it away and, and I'll take your supposed security because you're going to save me. You're going to rescue me. You're going to give me social security and it's going to keep me happy for the rest of my life, right? That was the idea when social security started, right? is you just pay a little money in, and then when you were older and you retired, you would have that social security, and it would keep you safe, right? How does that work? Does it work real good? Has it kept up with inflation? Every year it's interesting to see, because they give them like a 1% increase, that you know, a 0.8% increase, and the inflation rate's 4%. It, it's missed the point. And, and uh, sadly, the other part is that uh, it was supposed to be a standalone all by itself. Its fund was supposed to make money and increase. And uh, it didn't take Congress long to figure out that was a checkbook they could start writing out of. And so that money, is it there somewhere? Is there a big vault with all the Social Security uh, deposits in it that's ready for you to get yours? No. It's all spent. It's dependent on the budget at the time that they're writing the checks, whether they got the money to write the checks and to send out that money. It's not all sitting in a bank somewhere. They've been spending, they've been borrowing from the Social Security Administration forever. They've been stealing it is what they've been doing. But it's interesting how quick people are to trade away that which you have, which you have been granted, that which is your right as a human, because of fear and put yourself under bondage. And, and this will demonstrate a little bit further as long as we go. You'll see it really clear uh, in the example that scripture is going to use for us. Um, and let's see what else here. 
He does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Not to angels. Angels had a choice. They had a choice to follow Satan or follow God. The angels that fell have no redemption. Scripture shows us that, tells us that. They've already been condemned. They're already in their bondage uh, to condemnation, just like Satan. He can't change his mind. He can't back up and decide that he wants to be a Christian now. It's not going to be. But the seeds of Abraham receive aid, receive God's provision, receive God's salvation. Um, I'm going to flip to Galatians real quick. Galatians chapter 3, 6 through 9. And I want us to be clear on who are the seed of Abraham. Let me ask a question. Are you the seed of Abraham? Mark? Yes. Good. Good answer. Anybody else? This, this will help clear it up for us real quick. Uh, second question. Was Abraham a Jew? No. No. Not at all. Not at all. He was a Hebrew. You know what Hebrew means? Sojourner. He was identified by his movement. He was identified by the fact that he had no home and he traveled. He was not a Jew. He was not of Israel. To be of Israel, he would have to come after a gentleman named Jacob, whom God changed his name to Israel. To be called a Jew, he would have to follow Jacob's son and be after his time period, Jacob's son, Judah, from which the word Judean or Jew is derived. Abraham was not a Jew. That's important to understand in God's scripture and God's word. Let me read this for you in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 6 to 9. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. The seed of Abraham comes through belief in Christ. Born of the promise. So let's ask the question again. Are you of the seed of Abraham? Yeah. Yes, that's the right answer. Yeah. It's the only answer. It's not by being Jew or Gentile. Abraham was a Chaldean. He came from the Ur of the Chaldees. That is the land area that is now Iraq. That's where Babylon was. He's just below Babylon on a map. You can find Ur and you can see where that is. That's where Abraham came from. He was not Jewish. He was not an Israelite. The promise God gave him predated by years. Years. The promise that would come through the law to the nation of Israel who was chosen by God. We'll see that a little bit further as we go. Okay, Abraham, not a Jew, but his line is Christ based on the promise to Abraham. Our salvation as well and Israel's salvation was promised through Abraham. His blessing, Christ coming, was promised through Abraham. 
It was promised that his seed would be the one that would produce our salvation. And the fifth thing we saw here in this uh, little passage of verses that we read so far, um, well, actually it extends on. Let me go, did I go 17, 18? Yeah, I did. In verse 17, 18, we can see a couple things that are super important for us, and that's Christ's continuing work. Uh, the first is found, he is that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. A high priest who is merciful and faithful. How important is that to you in your understanding of the things of God? How important is it to you, first, that God is merciful? Absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Merciful. What do you deserve? Based on sin, before Christ, what did we deserve? Nothing. Death. 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 Eternal separation from God. We had no righteousness at all. Everything was as filthy rags. We had nothing that could redeem us. But God was merciful. Christ as the high priest is also faithful. How, how important is faithfulness to you? Everything. Because if you can't depend on him, you know, in, in the human priesthood, as demonstrated by uh, churches in our world and history, uh, it's not very faithful. Not very faithful at all. In fact, unfaithful is a better characteristic. Faithful to the ordinances, perhaps. Faithful to the traditions, perhaps. But faithful to the things of God, not so much. And so you see how sin has crept in. You see how sin has become rampant within the ranks uh, in the Catholic Church. You have priests who are molesting children. Uh, and is that faithfulness to the things of God? No. Absolutely not. You have those who pervert the message of the gospel for money. Is that faithfulness to God? No. But Christ, as God, as man will be our merciful and faithful high priest. This is an essential continuing work that Christ does. And that is super important for us to understand. He also is understanding and he is experienced. As it said in the passage, he uh, took on flesh and blood. He himself shared in the same that through death he might destroy him, but also that as he himself suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. There's a little uh, expansion on this in chapter 4, verse uh, 14 in Hebrews. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin yet without sin let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need his his greatness as a high priest is based on his experience 
and his person, his faithfulness, his mercy, and his grace makes him the one we go to in times of trouble. Not the pastor, not some counselor, not some world-written book, but Christ. He's been there. He experienced suffering. He experienced temptation. But the thing was, when he got out the other side, he didn't sin. We're human. We fail, don't we? We, we want to do the right thing. We set our mind to do the right thing. We start out to do the right thing and we trip and fall sometimes and, and the righteous man stumbles but gets back up. says in the Bible, by the grace of God, we keep getting back up. But he did it without sin. And that gives him the position. It gives him the place. It gives us the privilege of going to him and knowing that he knows the way out. When suffering comes and it's too much for us, he knows the way through. And he can tell us, you can make it. Why? Because he knows how to make it. He made it. He made it through so we can make it through. Now to understand this, oh, um, let me go to chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all his house. Oh, it's interesting. Scripture now gives us a comparison for our understanding. And it also uh, called Christ something else that's new. We saw he's the great high priest. We saw he's a merciful and faithful high priest. We see he's an experienced high priest. We see that he's a sympathetic high priest to our troubles. But we also see something now He's called an apostle. What is an apostle? The Bible says that truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Okay, but what is an apostle? What does the word mean? Is it a follower of That would be a disciple. That would be the word disciple. An apostle is a sent one. They've been sent. Yeah, they've been sent. Paul, when he was sent on his missionary journey, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was sent to a place. There's a lot of places that use that as a title, uh, as a power or position, a bishop or an apostle, or uh, they, they have lots of traditions of use of that word. But the reality of that word is he was sent. Who sent him? God did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent him to do the job. Right. He sent him down. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is Christ. He being equal with God, thought being God, did not think it robbery, but lowered himself. He dropped himself down. He took on humanity. He suffered the death on the cross, even the death on the cross, the shame of it. But we get a comparison here, and it's interesting because it helps us understand. Scripture is now going to teach us something in the next verses. We're going to learn something. He brings up Moses. He says, as Moses was faithful in all of his house. So now we have somebody to kind of anchor in on, and we can look at Moses. Um, do we all know who Moses was? Yes. Okay. And do we know how Moses was born? Okay, and do we know the miracle of Moses' childhood? 
What was the miracle of Moses' childhood? He was raised by the Yeah, but Mark? He escaped death. They put him in a basket and put him in the reeds in the water and, and she gave him up. Yeah, because no male children were supposed to live through childbirth as according to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's rule was abort every male child. Kill every male child. By the way, California, uh, there's a bill that's rolling through in our government peoples in California that is nothing more than infanticide. They are going to, in that bill, allow a mother to choose up to seven or eight months post-birth to kill her child if she decides she no longer wants it. I hope that it doesn't. I, I pray that it doesn't. Well, but it, as a reflection of who our leaders are, our political leaders in this state, the fact that a bill like that would even be put on paper is incredible. It's not just abortion as most people consider abortion while the child's in utero. This bill extends that all the way out to a period of possibly six to eight months post-birth. Kill the child. No repercussions. And written into that bill is it will make it illegal for anybody to attempt to investigate the death of that child and hold the mother accountable. So it basically will make law enforcement um, just ignore any child who is killed up to that point, that time period. It's absolutely evil. It's evil beyond evil. Okay. Moses, uh, he did a good job, but you know what? Moses wasn't sufficient. Moses wasn't perfect. Moses went through trials and suffering. How did he do in one of his first trials as a young uh, Egyptian-trained Israelite living in Israel? I mean, Egypt. How did he do? He killed a man. Oh, he committed murder. Yeah, that's insufficient. So he was a good servant. He hit him too hard. Yeah, he hit him too hard. It wasn't his fault. It was accidental. He didn't mean to. And uh, he's sorry, so he ought to be forgiven and let back out. He ran away. As soon as we see Moses, it helps us to understand Christ even better. Because as Moses is brought up as a comparison, and we see his failings and his falling. God didn't try to hide him. That's, that's one thing about the Bible you just have to appreciate, is that God did not hide the failure of people. What God demonstrates is his ability to save despite man's failures. Despite our best efforts, we're short of the mark. We've fallen short of God's glory. And we have to be saved. And God's doing it. And God's saving us. Moses didn't have the ability to give us salvation. Christ, it tells us, he had more glory. He wasn't just a servant, but he was a son. Moses was faithful. He, as a servant, he was faithful to God. There were times where Moses stood up. The children of Israel, God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. Moses said, no, no, no. No, please don't. Please don't. Multiple times, Moses put himself in the middle and he begged for the children of Israel who were doing evil things, running off in idolatry. Now here, we're going to come to probably... One of the key uh, phrases, let me, let me read on down to uh, verse 6. For this one, 
Verse three, I'm starting in verse three now. We already read through two, one and two. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who builds all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now there is the key in verse 6 that we need to hold on to. You see the word if, that should flag your attention, if we do something. Whose house we are, if we do something. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now I already told you, those folks who are caught in fear, fear doesn't have hope. Fear is a spiral that paralyzes you. Fear is something that draws you inside of yourself and cripples you from being able to work, to move, to do anything about it. But listen to the words that describe those who are holding on to hope is they have confidence and they have joy. They have confidence and they have rejoicing. It's the antithesis of fear. It's the opposite of fear is to have confidence yeah, something may be scary, but if I have confidence, I know I can get through it. I know I can get past it. I can tell you that uh, you don't want to ever work as a deputy sheriff with somebody who's afraid of doing the job. Because what gives you the first advantage when you go into a bad situation, when you walk into a house, people are fighting and trying to kill each other, uh, things are going on that are out of control. If you walk in with fear, they read it on your face and they will act aggressively and you'll lose. But if you have confidence when you walk into those situations, this is the first thing they see and nine times out of 10, they just, they just float down. The fellows that work with me, a few of them like to work with me because I go into situations and I do not have fear. Now I know they got guns that can kill me. They got knives, they can poke a hole in me. They got all kinds of bad things that could happen. But I'm not gonna let that stop me because I don't fear what man can do to me. I trust Jesus. I trust God. And if he put me there, he put me there for a reason. And if it's my last day, guess what? It's gonna be my last day. That's his choice. It's not their choice. It's God's choice. He knew the number of my days before I was born. He does not have an eraser on his pencil and have to readjust my number every time I go into a new call. He's like, well, this one might be it. Uh, we're gonna mark Mike down, take off 10 days. You know, no. Is the confidence as a believer that we have, if we have Christ and he's paid the price and he paid our debt, we have a hope and a future to look forward to this beyond this world. We should live in that confidence. We should rejoice in that confidence. That should show us as a thankful people wherever we go. And how long do we need to hold on to it for? Is it a one-time thing? Yeah, Till the end. Till the end, it says. That's a key for us. 
Faithfulness, absolutely essential. Now, the example we're seeing here is Israel. He's brought it out, in fact, by starting with Moses, but what follows is going to be, hey, here's an example for us as believers to read right now, to see right now as we go through the next part of this chapter in Hebrews. We're going to see it's talking about Israel. And this is appropriate. Paul wrote this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, down through verse, uh, I don't know, 13. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them... God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things, and he's referring to what he just said, that God was not well pleased with them. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What we're going to see in the next uh, few verses is Israel's actions to God's salvation. So back to Hebrews now. I'm going to read from chapter se uh, verse 7 of chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 2. It's not that many verses, so just hang with me, okay? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? 
Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And I'm going to stop right there on that. The sum of Israel's failure under Moses' faithful leadership and house building is found here, and, and it's underlined in verse 2 of chapter 4. They heard the word, but it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. They knew about God. They saw the things of God. They experienced the things of God. They, they, they were blessed by God's provision over and over again, but their, their belief of what was happening was never changed into the faith in the one who did it. They were good with the circumstances as it happened, but they never moved into believing God who did it and who called them out. And to understand this example, we need to think about Israel's condition first. What was their condition while they were in Egypt? Happy-go-lucky, wonderful, idyllic life by the side of the ocean seashore. They, they were in bad shape. They were enslaved. If you didn't make enough bricks, you're going to get beat. If you didn't make enough, you, enough, enough times in a row, you're going to get beat, you're going to die. They were dying in Egypt, and they called out, and they cried out to God. God heard them, and God sent Moses as a deliverer. Uh, they lived under a constant fear of death in Egypt. There was no way out. They had no hope. They were stuck. They were slaves. They were never not going to be slaves in Egypt. They were destined to die in captivity until God sent Moses to talk to Pharaoh. They had no hope. They lived in fear of death every day of their life because Pharaoh didn't like them. How did Pharaoh demonstrate death to them? We just said it a few minutes ago. He said, I'll kill all the male child. Kill all the male children. Now, if you continue that policy for years and generations, what's going to happen? No more males. You no longer have people. You no longer have Israel as a nation. They were in Egypt, but they were separated. God brought them into Egypt. 70 people way back in the beginning through Joseph brought them in. Jacob and his family, 70 in total. And God had raised them up into a nation of a two and a half million probably strong. 600,000 men, fighting age men, God had raised them up into this army. But they had no hope of getting out until God showed up. They were living in the fear of death because death was a reality. If they had a child and their wife got pregnant, 50-50. You didn't know if it was a male child, Pharaoh was going to kill it. He was afraid of it. Pharaoh was just going to use them till they were dead. The gospel that was preached to them, it said, as well as to us, they had the gospel preached to them. We've had the gospel preached to us. And you say, well, those are different, you know. Um, the gospel 
for us, is, you know, Jesus came, he lived, he died, uh, he was buried, he rose again. That's the gospel as we see. No, what he did is he came to slaves who were a slave to sin. He delivered them and he led them out of bondage. He led us out of bondage through the tomb. The same gospel. This is a demonstration of that gospel. He promised them deliverance from Egypt. He told Moses, you go in and you tell them to get ready. They're going to pack up and they're going to get ready to go. If they believed that and they got ready to go, they would have had everything ready to go. <laughs> they didn't have it all ready to go. It took 10 plagues to get Pharaoh softened up till he was actually going to cut them loose. But God said, I'm going to deliver you. And he said, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you to the promised land. I'm not just going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you somewhere. I'm going to take you through the wilderness. I'm going to get you to the promised land. You know what? God says the same thing to us. In salvation, he's delivering us from the fear of death. He's delivering us from death. He's going to carry us through this life. He's going to carry us through the grave and into eternity. He's going to provide for us right now. He's not going to let us be plucked out of his hand. He has given us an abundant life. There's parallels here for us to understand this. And for them, he promised them the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. What, have we, what has he promised us? Eternity. In heaven. No tears, no sorrow, no death, no bitterness, no garbage, no sin. He's given us everything for eternity to be with him. It's the gospel message. In fact, when God told Moses to go in, here's how he told him to say it. This is uh, Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. And look at this. Watch this. But they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. They didn't accept the gospel at the beginning. God had to dem demonstrate that he had the power to save to them over the plagues that was going on. Our salvation compares in this what God said he would do for them. God said he's done for us. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me and you shall find rest unto your souls. That's Matthew 11, 28, 29. The gospel was more than freedom. It was provision. It was God's provision. In, in 1 Corinthians 10, I read you, they had the spiritual food. God provided them manna. He had the spiritual drink and said it came through the rock, came through Christ. And there's a beautiful picture out in the wilderness uh, they were all thirsty and they're complaining. They want to go back to Egypt. We're going to die in the wilderness. And God told Moses, I want you to go strike that rock. I want you to go hit that rock. And he hit it 
and that rock broke open and water flowed out and they all had enough to feed, to, to drink uh, two and a half million some odd people plus all the livestock that they would have had with them. That enough water came out, it was sufficient for the entire group of Israel. And, and 1 Corinthians reminds us that that spiritual rock is Christ. He would only be struck once. He would not be struck again. And he would provide all the water. As he told the gal in John 4, at the woman at the well, he told her, if you take a drink of the water which I give, you will never thirst again. It will spring up in you a well of life everlasting. He provided that for them. We see this example. He provided a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, I've never understood that. Uh, too much, you know, I know I meant that's a lot of bees. I hope no one was allergic because if you got honey, you got to have bees, right? And had to have a lot of cows because you got to have milk or goats. You could have either or, I guess. But uh, that sounds like a lot of work. Did anybody ever milked a uh, goat or a cow for a long time? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. It takes a lot of work, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. If you want to keep it up and keep it in the fridge, it's not easy. It's a lot to do. Uh, but I've never really understood that. But I'll tell you what I understood is uh, when Joshua and Caleb and the other 10 spies came out and they were carrying one stick that took two men to hold one bunch of grapes. Because that's something I can get my eyes on. I'm saying, man, now that's a bunch of grapes. That's something I can actually figure out. But God said it's going to be a heritage and he gave them the hope of a continuing relationship in the promised land where he would provide now, the example continues in this passage for us is they heard what God said. They saw God do what he said he would do, right? All of them went through the sea. Which sea is it talking about? The Red Sea that God parted. They all walked through. And do you think that would have made an impression on you? You would think that would have made an impression on you. How about the cloud and the pillar of fire that guided them and stood outside the camp? That would make an impression on you. How about the manna that drifted down from heaven every day and you picked up and you could eat and would sustain you? That would make an impression on you, right? Yeah. You would think that would make an impression on you. Unfortunately, they had all that stuff. And at the moment, it was a really exciting thing. It's like, yay, we're going out of Egypt. Yay, we got something to eat. Yay, we got water to drink. As soon as they got to the next spot and they were thirsty again, they're like, oh, you're trying to kill us. We want to go back. And you know what they loved more than they loved God's provision? You know what they loved more? Onions and garlic back in and cucumbers back in Egypt. That was what came to their mind they experienced all those amazing miracles of God and they got over there and they had a bad day, one bad day, and they're like, oh, we could just have a cucumber again. We could just have a, how stupid is that? They lost, they failed to profit by the gospel they heard because it wasn't mixed in faith. There's a lot of Christians that come. Boy, they're excited. I said a prayer and, and I accepted Jesus and I wrote my name on a little tag here. And, and I, I, you know, everybody hugged me and it was exciting and it was fun. And I went to church and I, I bought a 22 pound Bible and I sit in the front row and I sing extra loud. And, and, and oh man, I'm getting tired of this. Is Where's that new thing? And then a couple of months, years later, it's like, oh, such a drag. See the miracles of God, see healing, see God's spirit working 
and just somehow fall short. That's a human thing to do. Israel demonstrated a very human thing to do. And that's why Hebrews reminds us if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And it repeated it in verse 14. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And the beauty of those two verses together is what you understand is at the very beginning you had nothing. You were in slavery. You had absolutely nothing to impress God with and yet Christ saved you. The confidence of that moment when you accepted Christ and you turned to him and surrendered your own life to him is that he can lead you through and that he can carry you and he can heal you and he can sustain you and he will correct you when you need it and you'll need to pay attention to it, but he will bring you to eternity. He didn't just save you and kick you out in the wilderness. God walked through the wilderness with them. He was with them day and night. For 40 years. But here's the statistic that should sober every one of us. Only two men out of that 600,000 men made it into the promised land. Only two made it into the promised land. 599,998 men saw the miracles, ate the manna, drank the water, watched the cloud, saw the fire, went through the Red Sea, and did not hold on to the confidence of their hope and the rejoicing of what God was doing every single day. And they turned, and there were only two guys, Joshua and Caleb, that made it into the promised land. That's what Hebrews is talking about here. They hardened their hearts in the day of rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. They were good when it was good, but boy, as soon as Moses was up on the mountain, it didn't take long till Aaron's building a golden calf, right? They're singing and dancing. It didn't take long. He's gone up there a couple days. They're like, oh, we're out in the wilderness. We need a God. We got to find us a God. They made some things. And why they failed, three things. They had hard hearts. They were the show me people. We got a show me state, you know. Well, they were show me people. They tested God. They murmured every time. They had divided hearts. They liked the benefits of God delivering them from bondage. But they clung to Egypt. It didn't take them long to turn back and want an onion again. We need some of them onions and cucumbers. They also had strained hearts. Hard hearts, divided hearts, and strained hearts. Is it didn't take them long to get back to idolatry because they had packed that in their suitcase. They said, well, what if God doesn't work out the way I want God to work out? I'm going to have in my suitcase my little idol because, you know, the whole nation of Egypt trusted those things. They had the God of the Nile. It's interesting because if you study uh, in Egyptian gods, uh, all the plagues are aimed at a God of Egypt. Little G God of Egypt. They had a God of flies. They had a God of frogs. They had the God of the Nile. They had a God of blood. Every single thing that God did dealt with their Egyptians' God's inability to be a God. And God just hit them smack and showed them for what they were. And he did it 
by demonstrating that the plague hit all of Egypt and left Israel out. Is the plague just hit the other folks? God kept them separate and survived, brought them through that. How does it start? How do we get to this hard heart, divided heart, strained heart attitude? Uh, verse 12 is where it shows us. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart in departing from the living God. Every man is born with such a heart before Christ. Jeremiah 17, 9 reminds us of that. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? All of us before Christ are born with that condition. There's a big problem when we don't stick to God's word and we allow anybody to come in and say anything and to twist God's word around. It always ends up in division. It always ends up in an evil heart of unbelief. Because if somebody worms their way into the church and they start preaching another gospel, it's anathema is what it calls it in Galatians. And boy, it's, it's not that hard. They just twist a little bit. Never start over. They just twist a little bit. And pretty soon they move Christ aside. And pretty soon they work something else in. You need to do it in this day. You need to eat this food. You need to wear these clothes. You need to uh, give this amount of money. And they just turn it into a twist. Um, drove through Salt Lake City. I was looking to see where uh, Temple Square used to be able to see it as you drove by for the, you know, the Mormon uh, temple up there. And uh, now there's so many new buildings and the freeway's all messed up. You can't see anything. But uh, I was looking because I wanted the opportunity for a conversation with um, my partner at work, who's a Mormon. And because um, that's, that's a good starter conversation right there. And I told him uh, when I got to work, I said, hey, I said, I tried to see the Temple Square from the freeway when I went through Salt Lake City. You can't even see it. And, uh, you know, he started talking about a few things and how this uh, today or yesterday, his uh, daughter was uh, being baptized. His eight-year-old daughter was being baptized. And, uh, but it's not what the Bible talks about baptism. It's their cult um, idea of what baptism is. Um, and then they were having a child blessing. And th those are all wonderful things. And I thought about how easy it is to get distracted from Christ as the central component. And when Joseph Smith began, he was a disgruntled believer or Christian and was disgruntled with all the churches in the area. Now, I don't know if he got snubbed. Someone didn't give him enough fried chicken in a potluck, didn't get a good seat in the house. I'm not sure what it was. But somehow or other, he suddenly had an epiphany and the angel Moroni showed up and told him about these golden plates that he alone knew the language to translate and which surprisingly are disappeared. No one knows where they are. And uh, comes up with this new idea that is going to fix God's word. No one needs to fix God's word. God's word doesn't need to be defended. It's capable of defending itself. Because it shows real quick the departure means and the departure method away from the truth. 
We're in a world right now where our government, I don't know if anybody saw this, but they've instituted a new division of Homeland Security that is going to be the disinformation police to make sure that everything we say and do on any social media, media platform, or it will probably become any public arena, is not disinformation. And what do you think is going to define that truth that they will hold to? Do you think it'll be God's word? No, I'll tell you that I believe it will be against God's word, will be its primary initial target. Why? Because they have an agenda they're pushing of transgenderism, transhumanism, sin, live like you want, be whatever initials you want to be. And that's all against that's all directly in opposition to what God said. So they've got to muffle God's word. They've got to shut the believer down. They've got to shut the Christian from going and telling. Should it? Absolutely not. That's what we were called to do is go tell. And you think God can carry us through that period of time that may be coming? Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't live in fear. Hold, that's what he said, hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Roman historians who recorded uh, the actions of the Roman government against the believers in the first uh, century, as the, Nero was burning them at the stake, as they were throwing them into the Colosseums to be eaten wild by wild animals, the number one thing that stood out was the Christian's love, not fear is they would be put in the arenas to die and they sang praises and they spoke the words of God. They did not demonstrate fear in the face of adversity. Every gospel writer would die except John. God kept him around to write the book of Revelations, I believe. But every other one would die and none of them were a nice little euthanasia of a uh, deadly injection or something. All of them died in horrific ways. They held to the truth of God's word. None died in fear. Proverbs gives, I mean, Hebrews gives us a great example here. The preventatives. Number one, exhort one another. Build each other up. That's why we're in church today, is not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to exhort one another. Go ahead, Paul. Uh, I've been to Rome and I've uh, seen the uh, kind of the shell of the Colosseums that a lot of that stuff took place. Yeah. You know, and I've been to the, uh, also the Vatican City is there. I've been through that too. And uh, they're, they're not going in the way of the Lord. Nope. Right now. Nope. Uh, nope, the Pope has said a few things that tell you he is not on God's page just lately. Exhort one another, number one. Number two, hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Not the middle of our confidence, because a lot of people are pretty confident in the middle of what they've done. They're like, well, I go every week and I give out free food or I help the poor or I do this, I do that. And they've left Christ behind because they're so busy just doing their thing. That's the middle of your confidence. The beginning of your confidence, as I said, was where Christ did the work and you accepted what he did. That's the confidence we're holding on to. Second, the third thing, no hard hearts. 
Keep listening to what God has to say. And the fourth and very important is mixed with faith. Belief mixed with faith. And faith always responds in these actions. It's always an action. It's not a static. But it always responds in these manners. Obedience, thankfulness, rejoicing, listening, learning, growing, rooted in Christ. Faith always produces an actionable result. James talks about that. Faith with his works. It's not substituted faith for works or works for faith. But Hebrews gives us a beautiful illustration. Uh, the whole Testament gives us the, the full. I've only picked a couple little tidbits. But we can see how Israel lived. We can see how Israel failed. That should be for us a lesson so that we do not do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today and to dig into it. Thank you for the lesson, um, Lord, that you've given us. So hopefully we will not have to go down the same road and find ourselves with hard hearts, strained hearts, divided hearts, but we will be focused on you, holding fast the beginning of our confidence in you and rejoicing about it. Lord, help us to be thankful people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 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 All righty. Glad you all made it. Glad God brought